Last week, we were discussing mindfulness of the Dhamma, which is the fourth foundation of mindfulness, with regard to sloth and torpor. Today, continue with this section of the Satipatthana Sutta, the section on the hindrances, exploring the fourth of the hindrances, restlessness and worry. Just as a reminder of why the Buddha emphasized so often working skillfully with the hindrances, he said, the hindrances, when carelessly attended to, cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, leading away from Nibbana. So I think there's good reason that we pay attention to these different mind states. Because as we attend to them carefully, and we see through them, we see their empty, transparent nature, and we're no longer so caught up in their seductive power, then they actually become the focus of our mindfulness, and they become the vehicle of our awakening. So the Pali word for restlessness, and don't quote me on the pronunciation, the Pali word is udacha, and it means agitation, excitement, distraction. Sometimes it's translated as the quality of shaking above, meaning the mind hovering above the object or shaking above it, where the mind isn't settled in, it's not steady. So restlessness, which is actually a good translation of that, meaning without rest, it expresses all those aspects of agitation. The Pali word for worry is kukucha, and this is more the quality of anxiety rather than scatteredness. So in the first instructions that we find throughout the sutta, we practice with each of the hindrances simply noticing whether the hindrance is present or not. And like the others, like with desire and aversion and sloth and torpor, there are obvious manifestations of them and more subtle manifestations, which we sometimes miss. I think we're quite familiar with the obvious expressions of restlessness and of worry. We can feel restlessness in the body, you know, a kind of agitated energy sometimes where it just seems impossible to sit still. We have the feeling just of wanting to jump out of our skin. And the waves of this restlessness can just arise at any time. When I was practicing in Burma, went through one stretch where at the same hour every day, it was like around seven or eight in the evening, I would have this intense, overwhelming restlessness in my body. I had to just get up and basically run, although I was really kind of walking quickly around the whole edge of the monastery just to do something with that energy. It was so strong. Uh, 
I'm sure the Burmese nuns and monks will look at this crazy tall Westerner kind of running around the monastery. We can also experience obvious states of restlessness in our mind. You know, we just get lost in various kinds of thoughts and feel the thoughts as as a whirlwind or a kind of inner turmoil. And there's an obsessive quality that comes up with this kind of mental restlessness in a very... uh, Familiar expression of that, of course, is in the phenomenon of yogi mind, where you know we're in this quiet, open space, and the mind just starts obsessing about something. Out of all proportion to its importance, often with very little connection to reality, but we just get lost and we're pulled into it. One time I was doing a retreat at the retreat center, and I was, I was coming in from the outside, having done some walking practice, and I just walked by the office, and all I heard was somebody in the office, in the middle of a sentence, I didn't hear the sentence, I just heard one word, Joseph. <laughs> hours, hours of sitting and being lost in all kinds of thoughts and you know, self-judgments about my practice and what people were thinking. And I was just creating these huge scenarios. One word. You know, that's yogi mind. So these are the obvious forms of restlessness. There are more subtle forms, and I think they're really interesting to notice in our practice because when we frame them in the right way, it actually allows our minds to settle to a deeper place. We see this more subtle kind of restlessness actually when things are going smoothly. You know, when there's a reasonable degree of concentration and we're not struggling. But have you noticed, even in those times, very often, it's just the mind slipping off the object into a thought, kind of a half-noticed or not-at-all-noticed thought. And it's all very subtle. You know, even within the duration of a single breath. You know, we can be with the breath and it just kind of slips off into a little thought and then back to the breath again. So we don't really feel it as a disturbance. But it was interesting for me when I was watching my mind, you know, with with a degree of care and understanding that that also is a kind of restless mind. It's the mind that's not settled in the object. It's just slipping off and then slipping back and slipping off. Restlessness, like sloth and torpor, is not fully uprooted until we're fully enlightened. You know, it's one of the hindrances that has very deep roots within us, this agitation of mind or distractedness of mind. It's helpful to notice, of course, the very obvious manifestations of it, but also to start picking up just these more subtle movements of the mind becoming distracted. Worry also manifests in different ways. Sometimes we feel remorse or regret 
about past unskillful actions, you know, and it just keeps coming up in our minds. And we, we have that worry or regret about it. Well, sometimes we can have worry or regret about skillful actions that we didn't do, you know, that we, sh- we think we should have done. Sometimes we worry about some imagined future. And this can be at all levels of intensity. You know, we might create some disaster scenarios in our minds and then worry about them. Might be worry about our loved ones, even if everything is okay in the moment, much less if there are difficulties. But we create easily a sense of worry. We can worry about anticipated problems. You can see in a very small way, I've seen this come up in the mind, it's a somewhat trivial way, but it points very clearly to this particular mind state. I see it come up in travel a lot. You know, you're on a plane, it's a little late, you don't know whether you're going to make the connection. And so sometimes I find myself in that situation, and then thinking about all the problems of miss the connection and what are going to happen, you know, all of that, that kind of worry. And often I can kind of feel myself sitting in the seat, urging the plane to go a little faster. (laughs) Okay, come on. And it's kind of feeling just that inner tension, you know, of worry about some possibility. And of course, this worry has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on the outcome. It doesn't help in any way at all. We simply are making ourselves tense and miserable. So in addition to whatever inconvenience may or may not be there in these situations, it's as if we're saying to ourselves, oh, let's add a little suffering to the mix. So it's just to see it, and these are patterns that we have. The mindfulness of the Dhamma, mindfulness of the hindrance, is to recognize, is this present in me? Is it not present? Sometimes we worry about our practice, our meditation practice. You know, while goals and aspirations are definitely a key aspect of our whole journey, we can easily become over-concerned about our practice, about how we're doing, you know, about our enlightenment or lack of enlightenment. And just our practice then just gets into this obsessive concern or obsessive care, obsessive worry about our practice, about our pra- progress. And it's very easy then to fall into all kinds of self-judgment It's a kind of spiritual self-absorption, not absorption in a good way. It's just that absorption in self, self self-concern. And often it comes up on a retreat in comparison. uh, We start comparing ourselves with uh, other yogis. You know, that person is walking slower than I am. You know, or they're staying up later. Or how long do people sit? Do you ever find yourself checking out? You know, oh, these people are sitting longer than me, or they're not sitting longer. And then we feel ourselves to be a good yogi and making good progress. 
And so it's just caught up in this worry about our practice instead of simply settling back and resting, instead of restlessness, resting in the present moment. So the first steps, just noticing, noting when restlessness and worry are present in us, present in the mind, when they're not. Then, as with the other hindrances, the next steps are to recognize the causes for the arising of these states. Everything arises out of conditions. So what are the conditions, the causes for the arising of restlessness and worry? The most basic framework for understanding the cause of this hindrance, the cause of its arising, is seeing it as an imbalance of energy and concentration. When there's an excess of energy, either physical or mental, and there's not enough concentration to hold it, then the mind gets agitated in this way. And it's the image I have sometimes is just you know, of energy held in a container. And if there's too much energy and the container's not big enough, it just kind of rattles around and then spills over. It gets uh, very disturbed. Now this imbalance itself of energy and concentration, where there's too much energy, not enough stillness, not enough stability of mind to hold it in equilibrium, this imbalance comes from different causes. It can come from an unwise attention to our thoughts and an unwise attention to states of disquietude, meaning we get drawn into the content of our thoughts very easily. And this is particularly true for people with a predilection for thinking which is almost all of us. So we need to see this tendency to get pulled into the content of our thoughts. We need to see that very uh, closely. Saira Upandita used to talk of the tribes of Sariputta and the tribes of Moggallana. Now Moggallana, the two chief disciples of the Buddha, Moggallana was foremost in samadhi and the psychic powers and all that, and Sariputta was foremost in wisdom. So Sada used to say that, to me, and I think this is generally true for many of us, that I was in the tribe of Sariputta, because he liked to think a lot. His power, the power of his mind, was the power of analytic reasoning, which is why he was foremost in wisdom. So it took him a longer time to get enlightened, took him two weeks instead of a week. (laughs) So we need to take care, (laughs) lest it delay us too much. Very often, we reinforce this predilection towards thinking and towards getting pulled into the content of thought because of a very ingrained notion we have that thinking leads to wisdom. Now, we've all had the experience, of course, that thoughts can be very creative. And through our thinking process, we can come 
to sometimes profound kinds of understanding. But there are whole levels and domains of insight and wisdom that are simply beyond the range of thought, where thought will never carry us. So we need to know that. No matter how much we read or think about a good meal, it will never give us the experience we have of actually tasting it. There's a domain of direct experience beyond the realm of thought, although wise thought can point us in that direction, but we have to go beyond the thinking process. So unwise attention to thought, restlessness and worry can come about through unwise attention to situations in the world. And true in the Buddhist time, and maybe it's even more true now, given all the things that are going on. St. John of the Cross had some powerful words about this, and they really become a mirror for our own minds. He said, disquietude is always vanity because it serves no good. Even if the whole world were thrown into confusion and all things in it, disquietude on that account would still be vanity. That's an interesting reflection on our own minds and our own responses and reactions. Now it doesn't mean, and it does not imply non-caring, it doesn't imply apathy, it doesn't imply non-responsiveness. Simply that we should examine situations, whether they're in the world, you know, outside or in the world of our own lives, can we examine them with the eye of wisdom? and see what the appropriate and skillful response is. Mental agitation contributes nothing to this process. So we need to really see. And again, with all of these teachings, it's not a question of believing them. It's a question of checking this out for oneself in one's own experience. That's the only way that they have meaning for us. So unwise attention to thought, unwise attention to situations in our lives or in the world. The texts give another uh, cause and condition for the arising of restlessness and worry. And that is provocative talk and prolonged discussions. Well, on a silent retreat, this is not so much of a problem. But it does point us in the direction of more modern-day communications that can disturb the seclusion and agitate the mind. When I first went to India, and then later to Burma, I asked when I I was there just to receive whatever letters I got. And the same thing happened each time. It's like when I heard that there was a letter for me that I could feel kind of, 
you know, just kind of an excitement. Here I had been, you know, away for months and sometimes years at a time. And so, you know, a letter came from home and I'd feel that excitement. And then I found it would take sometimes a day or days for the mind to settle down from all the thoughts that it had stirred up. The same is true for phone or for email. We think it's just a little thing. You know, we make a phone call or send an email. But it's actually agitating for the mind, especially once it has settled into some kind of seclusion. Some years ago, before I was sitting at the Forest Refuge, I would do self-retreats at home. And again, I would just check my email uh, maybe once a day, and it seemed like such a quick and innocuous thing to do. It was a terrible thing to do. It just, it just called up all the thoughts about all these messages. And then I would find that sometimes my responses were really nothing more than the expression of yogi mind and totally inappropriate you know, to the situation. What we consider a small thing turns out to have huge ripple effects in terms of this hindrance of restlessness and worry. It's one of the causes, it's one of the conditions for the arising. It agitates the mind and makes it difficult to sustain concentration. So again, these are things to take care with. Now one of the major causes for the arising of worry and regret are remembering past unskillful actions. You know, and especially on retreat, these thoughts and memories and images can become so vivid in our minds. The space is such an intimate one, such an internally intimate space, that the things that arise, you know, arise often with great power. And probably like most of you, there were many things that would come up in my practice as memories that were really difficult. You know, a story I've told many times at the retreat center in my Peace Corps days, part of it, part of our training was killing a chicken. You know, and I was young, I was like 20 years old, you know, just had finished college, we were training I was actually training to be an English teacher, so I didn't know why they thought this was a good idea, but this is what they had us do. And I remember at the time I was, I was proud of myself. You know, I thought, yeah, this, you know, I'm a man, I ought to be able to do this. Well, years later, you know, after the Peace Corps, I was in India, I was sitting practicing. It just came back in my mind. It was, it was horrible. You know, I was kind of reliving basically a murder. You know, and it was only in the stillness of my practice where I could really see, you know, very clearly that I felt it so deeply and so consciously, which was really part of the purifying process. It took, it took days for me to just be with it and see it and let it wash through and again come up and let it wash through until it, it really finally emptied out of my mind. 
to see and understand more deeply this cause of worry or regret, it's helpful at some point to look deeply into what the Buddha called the 10 unwholesome actions. You know, he said, okay, these are, these are actions which are unskillful, unwholesome, don't do them, you know, because if you do, they will have, of course, harmful consequences for others, cause tremendous regret in oneself, not have good results in the future. And so reflection on these 10 unwholesome actions could be its own talk, but I just wanted to mention them uh, just as a way of kind of highlighting uh, the understanding of this cause of regret, of, of worry. There are three of body, four of speech, three of mind, and you're familiar with all of these. You know, it's killing and stealing and sexual misconduct, are the unwholesome actions of body. Lying, harsh speech, backbiting, gossip, or useless talk are the three unskillful actions of speech. And covetousness, ill will, and wrong view of self are the three unwholesome factors or actions of mind. As we understand this, then we begin to see the cause of worry or regret arising in our mind. It's not happening uncaused. And it becomes a strong motivation to practice sila, which I'll talk about a little later. So another cause for the arising of worry and restlessness is an excess of striving in our practice. As I said, it's an over-concern with one's progress or level of insight. And we get caught up in what I call practice assessment tapes. This is a note I've suggested often for people to use. When your mind is just assessing your practice, I'm doing well, I'm not doing well, the retreat was better last year, the concentration is poor, where's the insight? Just on and on. It's very good to make that note. Because then we're always juggling and fiddling with our practice. It's good, it's bad. And it just creates agitation. It's It's a cause for this worry to arise. When I was pretty young, like eight or nine, uh, I started my first and last garden. It was my, my great foray into the world of gardening. So I was just this little kid and I you know, created this garden. Uh, and I planted you know, the seeds. And as the carrots you know, started coming up and kind of the shoots coming out of the ground, I would get so excited when I saw anything come out of the ground, I'd just pull it out to see how it was doing. <laughs> well, the carrots didn't do too well. I think that was a portent for my future gardening career. But we do that same thing in the practice. It's like we're always pulling the carrot out. How am I doing? You know, and assessing our practice instead of simply doing it. It's not helpful. It creates this 
distraction in the mind. Sung San, who was the great Korean Zen master, uh, he had a wonderful way of expressing things in kind of his unique English. He would, he would say to his students, don't check, just go straight. Right? Don't check, just go straight. And it's really helpful. At one point in my practice where I was going through a lot of this kind of practice assessment, you know, and with all the attendant self-judging that was coming with it, after some time of just being lost in this and seeing how both how unpleasant it was and uncomfortable and what a distraction it was, I remember telling myself, Joseph, just sit and walk. Just sit and walk. Let the Dharma take care of the rest. It was like a surrendering to the Dharma. So after we contemplate and understand the causes of restlessness and worry, the next step is knowing how to work with it. Okay, what do we do when it actually arises? As with all the hindrances, mindfulness of the states themselves is the first approach. We want to recognize, we want to be mindful. Restlessness, worry, agitation, distraction, just be with it, open to it, note it. And we want to see it, as the Buddha said, with perfect wisdom, meaning This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. It's a conditioned arising state. So this is the role of mindfulness. We actually open to it. Sometimes I think noting the hindrances in Pali, even if one is not a great Pali scholar, but I found it helpful sometimes to use the Pali because it helps to depersonalize them. You know, where we use a word we're not familiar with and we don't have a lot of connotation in our use of the word, it can help just recognize it for what it is. So, for example, we're racked with guilt about something. Kukucha. That's all. Racked with guilt, kukucha. Can't sit still, udacha. You know, it's just, oh yeah, that's what this is. It's just this energy. It's not I, it's not mine, it's not myself. We don't have to make a whole story about it. It's just to see it for what it is. Now part of this mindfulness, mindfulness of them, is to see how quickly we can recognize these hindrances, and particularly here restlessness and worry, How quickly can we recognize it? How close to the beginning before getting really lost and carried away? When you feel that the mind is not settled, when it's not settling into the object, when it's not at rest, 
become mindful of what's going on. Let the unease that you're feeling be the mindfulness bell. Let that be the signal. Let me look at the mind state. Is restlessness present? Is worry present? Is agitation present? Notice the physical energies of restlessness and worry. And notice the difference between the two. You know, they're often linked in terms of being this fourth hindrance, but they're different states. My experience is that restlessness is more of a scattered and dispersed energy, and worry is more a quality of anxiety. There's an, there's an anxiousness you know, that I feel. By being mindful of the hindrances when they arise. So it's not fighting with them, it's not struggling with them, it's just noticing. This is here, this is here, this is here. That simple act of mindfulness of the hindrance is a way of bringing the energy and concentration back into balance again. Now we can experiment in a couple of ways. I found there are really two opposing techniques for working with the balance. And you need to experiment for yourself at any particular time which is going to work. So suppose you recognize that there's restlessness or agitation or worry. Sometimes we need to use a wide-angle lens to really make the mind quite big, quite open settling back and being aware of the whole body, opening even further, opening to sounds, so that all of that restless energy is held in the infinitude of space, you know, so it's not rattling around in a smaller container. Sometimes I picture restlessness, that particular mind state, as a Jackson Pollock painting. Are you familiar with his painting? It's, it's just like, it's a whirlwind of paint, you know, all over. And mindfulness, in a way, is like the frame. You know, why do we put a frame around the picture? We put the frame around the picture in order to see it more clearly. It highlights what's in the frame. So, if you think of restlessness as a work of art, and then you're just framing it, in order to see it, that might change your relationship to it. The other approach, and it's really the opposite approach, instead of making the mind wide and open, another approach to working with restlessness and worry is instead of the zoom, instead of the wide-angle lens, we're using the zoom lens. You know, focusing the mind more precisely, more microscopically on a particular object like the breath. Or to be quite precise, you know, as you're moving around, to really work with that sense of bodily composure. Because often when we're restless or agitated or worried, it gets manifest in our physical movements, which get very jerky or unsettled. So a way of settling the energy is to use the body movement whether it's in walking meditation or just in walking about, with an emphasis on composure. 
this can help calm the obsessive thinking in the mind. Saida Upandita once gave me the, the most simple instruction that helped amazingly. I was, I was sitting with him in Nepal, and the conditions were terrible. They were just terrible. There were like five of us in a room sleeping on a cement floor next to the latrine, so all the bad smells were there, and it was, the conditions were terrible. And my mind was pretty grumpy. You know, and so just in all of this, I'd be doing the walking meditation or sitting, and I could just all these all these thoughts just filling my mind. So I went in in one interview, and I told him what happened, what was happening, and he just said one very simple thing. You ready? He said, "Be more mindful." And my first reaction was, "Thanks a lot." <laughs> Here I'm kind of being just tossed about by all this mental agitation. And all he says is be more mindful. But then I went outside and I actually thought, well, maybe I'll try it. And I just became more mindful. I started doing the walking practice very carefully with a really close attention, a microscopic attention. It was amazing. Within a couple of steps all of the agitation settled down because there was no room for it. And I hadn't realized how much space I had been giving it you know, and how I had been feeding it. So we can work in both these ways. And at different times, one approach or the other uh, will be helpful. When the mind is just caught up you know, in a stream of restless activity or worried feelings. Sometimes another uh, practice that can be helpful, very simple, is just to to sit with the eyes open. Sometimes we get so lost in our little mental dramas, you know, and they become so uh, magnified uh, in our minds. Sometimes just by opening the eyes, connecting us with the reality of where we are, what we're doing, we're just sitting here. I have found that it can often cut the momentum, the forward momentum of this runaway thought process. If we're trying to be mindful of these various hindrances, but we're still getting lost and there's a, there's a good phrase in English fitting this hindrance perfectly in the flurry and worry you know, of our minds. And that's just, that's just what it is. It's the flurry of restlessness you know, and the worry of regret. If we're still, if we're trying to be mindful but we still find that we're, we're getting caught, there are some other things we can do to help us regain certain stability. We can reflect a bit, and this would be the skillful use of the thought process, we can reflect a bit on the purpose of our practicing. You know, why are we doing this? Why are you here? What motivated you to come? The purpose of the practice, whatever your individual motivations may be, but really what happens is 
the purification of our hearts and minds, of all those forces which cause suffering to ourselves and others. That's really what we're doing here. So remembering that, you know, and recollecting that, and recollecting that we're not only doing it for ourselves, but we really can undertake the practice for the welfare of all beings, it helps to remind us, it helps to settle the mind, to take us out of that obsessive run of thought. We reconnect with our respect for the practice and also with respect for ourselves for doing it. In one, in one retreat, I remember when there was just this, a lot of mental restlessness. I was getting caught again and again in a lot of thought. I remember saying to myself, Joseph, do you want to think or do you want to get enlightened? You know, and it was just a reminder, yeah, what am I doing here? And it, it created a certain level of motivation and interest in When we remember our sense of purpose, it's easier to connect again with the object of awareness, of simply being mindful of just what's there. And so we go from a state of restlessness to a state of restfulness, and our practice continues to deepen. So that's one reflection, recollection of our motivation, why we're here. Another aspect of wise reflection, which can help us emerge from restlessness and worry when they're very strong, is the investigation, bringing the investigation factor to simply see thoughts as thoughts rather than being swept away by their content. Often what's feeding the content are underlying emotions. So opening to the emotions underneath the run of thoughts, seeing them, opening to them, becoming mindful of them, can also help stabilize the awareness. Reflecting on our present commitment to sila can bring us out of that state of worry or state of regret, state of guilt about past actions. You know, we've all done unskillful acts in the past. Even the Buddha had done unskillful acts before his enlightenment. So we all have, this is just part of our human and non-human existences. You know, this is just what has happened. So it's not a question of forgetting, like the actions we've done, or it's not a question of suppressing it in our minds. It's also not very skillful to wallow in self-recrimination. It's simply to recognize as these different remembrances come up, we just see with wisdom. Yet that was unskillful. 
And that wisdom becomes the, the power in us for future restraint. No, I don't need to do that again. And we actually can draw a tremendous confidence and a tremendous strength and sense of well-being from recognizing our present commitment to sila, to non-harming. Yes, all these things may have happened, but I am committed to non-harming now. And that gives us that place of strength where we can see all the other stuff and simply learn from it. One of my favorite lines uh, in poetry is, is from a poem by Galway Canal. This is... He said, sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness so that it flowers from within of self-blessing. You know, it's so easy for us to get caught in self-recrimination, self-judgment and guilt and all kinds of things that are not helpful. They're just really ego-strengthening. Once we are committed to a life of sila, it's like we're reteaching ourselves our loveliness so that we can flower from within of self-blessing. And so we appreciate that. Of course, our tendency to self-judgment runs very, very deep. One time, uh, this, this again was in Burma, I was practicing, and my practice had just kind of gotten to a standstill. It felt like I was going over the same ground again and again and again. Every day the report was the same to Sayadaw. So one day I go in and by way of cheering me up and inspiring me, he said, Joseph, uh, contemplate your sila. You know, as a way of really delighting my mind. Well, of course, being a Westerner, my first reaction in my mind, he said, contemplate your sila. First reaction, did I do something wrong? (laughs) It's like that's how I turned it. Because we're not used to kind of this reflection on our wholesomeness. It's a very powerful thing to to turn away from that pattern of self-judgment and reflect on our present wholesomeness. This is a strength. This is an energy. And it does lighten the mind. It does delight the mind. Lastly, when we're caught up in worry or excessive concern about our practice, about our progress, about how we're doing, we can balance the linear model of practice, you know, of going through different stages. And as a counterbalance to that, just emphasize you know, the view that's more expressed in like the Thai tradition and in, in some of the Tibetan traditions, and that is recognizing the mind's empty, aware nature, that it's already here. So from this perspective, from this way of expressing the Dharma, it's not something that we need to get. It's not something we're lacking. It's something we need to come back to. A mantra that I've used, one of my little Vipassana mantras, I've used very effectively when I found myself in this excessively striving mode, 
And there's a, there's a good kind of striving, you know, where we're really energetic and committed and um, there's, this, there's this tremendous zeal for practice. That's great. But there's an excessive kind of striving where we're just too caught up in attachment to results, you know, and judging about how we are. The mantra that I used, which was so effective in cutting through this, very simple, already aware. Already aware. I don't have to go looking for it. I simply need to settle back into it. And when I would say that to myself, I could feel, just in the moment, that relaxation back into the moment. Narayan is one of the teachers uh, at the retreat center in Cambridge. She, she created this very little book, booklet. It's very small. It's just like a couple of inches high. And it's, it's, it's a book of little drawings and just uh, one-line captions. And it, it's a lovely book. And basically it's just these pictures and, and captions. When walking, just walk. When eating, just eat. When standing, just stand. When lying, just lie. Whatever. And it just goes through you know, many different activities during the day. And I was amazed how frequently just those lines would come back to me as I was practicing. When walking, just walk. And it frees the mind from that worry about the practice, about how we're doing. There's one powerful teaching in the Dhammapada. There are many, of course, but the one I'm wanted to mention here, has to do with this letting go, this settling back and letting go. It says, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the further shore. And it's such a powerful, you know, we're pretty familiar, let go of the past, let go of the future. But what does letting go of the present mean? It's the mind releasing from any clinging, from any wanting, from any judging. So I'd like to close with a poem by somebody that I just discovered. Somebody sent me a book of his poetry. I had not even heard of him, but he... is, I gather, a rather well-known poet, Portuguese, from uh, the beginning of the last century. His name is Fernando Pessoa. And I was just glancing through the book, and I came across this one poem, and I knew immediately this is for a Dharma talk. So the title of the poem is Live, You Say, in the Present. Okay. Live, You Say, in the Present live only in the present. But I don't want the present. I want reality. I want existent things, not the time which measures things. What is the present? It's something relative to the past and the future. It's something that exists by virtue of other things existing. I only want reality things without time present. 
I don't want to include time in my scheme. I don't want to think of things as time-bound. I want to think of them as things. I don't want to separate them from themselves, treating them as things present. I shouldn't even treat them as real things. I shouldn't treat them as anything. I should see them, just see them. See them until I can't think about them. See them without time or space. See and be able to put aside all but the seeable. This is the science of perception, which is no science at all. I don't want the present. I want reality. So this is our practice. Let's sit for just a few moments. the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of Mindfulness and wisdom, austerity. 
take hold, nor weaken my resolve. O Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpasses the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Forest Refuge on April 28, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.